Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. everyone it's LaShonda from Labors of Love and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast today I have a special guest with me she is a grief advocate and mental health educator I have Anna Jollymore hi Anna hello LaShonda welcome welcome so glad you could be here with me and yeah sorry go ahead oh I was just gonna say thank you for having me (laughs) I'm I'm beyond excited Awesome. So I'm going to start with you, like I do all my guests, and ask, what is your labor of love? So my labor of love is helping people heal their broken hearts after experiences of big loss and big change. Mm. So I use a specific methodology called the grief recovery method to help guide people through their grief and teach them the skills that they need in order to process that grief directly and get unstuck to move through it and get to the other side with a renewed capacity for hope and joy. Mm. Beautifully put. You know, grief is not a new topic for myself or those who listen to the podcast. Um, But I also don't think you can talk about grief too much. (laughs) It's one of those things that I'm not like, oh, we've talked about that. No, let's talk some more because grief has its way of manifesting in many different ways. And there we're probably we're going to get into a little bit later about talking about different myths around grief. One of them being that once you pass through it one time, it's done. Um, (laughs) right you know and so um I like to think of grief as poop versus a kidney stone um (laughs) you know one of those things you hope you only have to go through one time it's excruciating it's painful um but you know I deal every day um and I don't (laughs) consider that too much information uh waste (laughs) moves through me (laughs) on a regular basis and I know that other people have different forms of regularity but the point is it's going to resurface. Um, And there is a way that we can engage with it that doesn't have to be completely, you know, distracting or uh, take away from our daily routine. So we can talk about that a little bit later. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Grief is omnipresent. It is, it's a natural and ongoing part of our life. And when I say, when I tell people I, I do grief work, Sometimes they respond and say, oh, well, well, that's interesting. But, you know, I've never, never had anyone die. I've never been to a funeral. And I'm like, okay, great. Good for you. But I got to tell you, your life is still full of grief. I guarantee Mm -hmm. it. There are over 40 different kinds of loss that you can experience, can and will experience in your lifetime. Um, Any, any big change comes with grief. So buckle up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I am very um, excited to kind of expand the perspective of many people around grief. But before we go there, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this work? Very often there is some kind of 
um, sometimes for people, it's an event or an incident, or for some, it's just kind of a pervasive existence that they had for a while that led them to this work. But what led you specifically to the grief work? Yeah, great question. In hindsight, I think I was always destined to work with grief and loss. It's just something I've never felt uncomfortable talking about. And it, I, I realized eventually that that was abnormal, that most people are really comfortable talking about death and dying and grief and loss and trauma. Uh, not me, always, always been a spooky Scorpio. But um, I came to the grief recovery method specifically because in 2019, one of my best friends, Susanna, died of cancer. She was just shy of her 38th birthday. She was one of the biggest, loudest, most joyful people anyone had ever met. It, when she was diagnosed, it seemed unfathomable that, that this force of nature could die, could not exist in the world. But she did. She had melanoma and uh, passed away in 2019. And in my journey to process that loss... I Googled, <laughs> I did what a lot of people do, and I Googled, how do I do this, and came upon the grief recovery method, and thought, why not? So I went through the program myself, and I had such a transformative experience that I decided to make an entire career shift. I went back to the Grief Recovery Institute. I became certified, and then advanced certified in the program myself, and I've been doing that ever since. Mm. Well, firstly, um, I'm sorry for your loss. And thank, thank you. you for sharing that. Um, and you're right. Um, Google has what did we do before Google? I don't I don't <clears throat> know. I, I, I honestly like I'm not even being funny. I just think like when I have a question and I don't know, I Google it and now modern advances in technology allow me to just call a name. You know, some people call Siri, some people call Alexa, some people call, hey, Google, like we <laughs> Bixby, like all these things. And it's like, ask this question. And it's this, you know, this access to something that gives you information. But we've been grieving long before the advent of Google <laughs> and the Internet. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, yeah, that's just interesting. But you found this. What did you you said you decided because of the transformational experience you had going through this process as a person who was grieving, you decided to make a career shift. What did you shift from? What were you doing before? Before that, I had been working for about 15 years in growth stage startups on the go-to-market side. A lot of training and education. I did sales and customer success enablement for a long time and, and really loved that. I feel like I carry so much of my teaching methodology from that world into this world uh, mm -hmm. as I'm guiding people through grief, I'm helping them, I, you know, I'm not healing their broken hearts, they are, and I'm teaching them how to do it. I'm giving them the skills that they need in order to do that. Mm, that feels extremely transferable. <laughs> like as soon as yeah. you said it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that felt like a lateral move to me. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I get that. So thank you for sharing that. So tell us a little bit more about the method itself um, to anchor our conversation when we're talking, when you're talking about the grief recovery method, um, what are some of the things that someone, you know, what are the must knows about the system and the process? Yes. So the grief recovery method has been around for about 40 years and it is, it was designed by grievers for grievers. 
And it is a finite program and an educational intervention to learn how to process grief directly. And it, so the way I run it is virtually over the course of six weeks. And over the course of those six weeks, we start with what I call deprogramming. So unlearning negative and harmful misconceptions that we have about grief. And then we actually move into the process of working on a specific relationship. You know, people come to this program with a loss in mind and there are a set of exercises. There's, there are graphs, there are charts, there, are, there is homework. It's very action oriented to diagram out that relationship, identify all of the pieces of it that feel incomplete, where there feels like there is undelivered communication that still needs to be said and acknowledged to that person. Diagramming all of that out, and then it comes together at the very end in the form of a letter. We call it the completion letter. So the person I'm working with, it, they put it all together in that letter, and they read it out loud to me, imagining in that moment that I am whomever or whatever they've lost. And it's it's kind of magic <laughs> in the way it works. It's each step of the way is so simple. Each of the tools is so simple in and of itself, but it's just taking the time and having the bravery and like, and the guide they're holding, holding that space for you to work through it. Um, that gets all of those, those undelivered things that are still kind of stuck, um, unstuck and delivered. Thank you for sharing that process. So is there an ideal griever, right? Um, that this process in and of itself lends itself to. We talk about the multitude of uh, kinds of things that we can grieve, but is there, um, so I don't necessarily know that the answer to that is if you're grieving death or if you're grieving a big move, like not that question, but more like the kind of person or not even the kind of person. What am I asking? I'm asking if there's like a stage of grief, perhaps, or um, a relationship with grief that one has that makes them ideal for this? Or is it pretty encompassing to, to capture people wherever they are? Ooh, lots to unpack in that question. Mm -hmm. The short answer is, what I've seen so far is that this works for everybody who's who's come to work with me so far regardless of what kind of loss they've experienced i would say about 50% of the clients i've worked with we are talking about death you know they have they have lost a person or a pet and then the other 50% is this long tail of all kinds of things um you know losing someone ambiguously, like I, losing a parent to dementia or Alzheimer's, where they're technically still there, but, you know, the, the mom you know is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, divorce or breakups, a lot of people working through that. Um, after COVID hit, I've worked with people that, are, that were laid off from a job that they loved and really feeling stuck and, and mourning that loss. I have worked with people who, who go through their journey of losing their innocence or losing their sense of faith or trust in something 
or, or even in an institution. Um, I've worked with many queer people. I love working with queer people, with trans people that are just evolving into their true selves, but also there, there is loss that comes along with embracing who you really are, you know, whether that is joyful loss, saying goodbye to parts of yourself that were masks that no longer serve you, or painful loss, you know, losing family members and and community and safety because of that evolution. So it's really all over the map. And then in terms of the stage, we'll get into this later. I don't, uh, you know, it's one of the myths about grief is that there are stages to it. But a really common question that I get asked is when is the right time? Okay, I've, I've experienced some sort of loss or trauma. I know I'm dealing with grief. When is the right time to do a program like this? And again, I have, I have worked with people who I'm their first phone call when the funeral is over. And I have worked with people who, you know, their spouse died 30 years ago and they are, they're still working with that grief and, and trying to find a way to the other side of it. So it's not, um, I don't think it's right to ask, is there a right time to tackle grief? But it might be more interesting to ask, when do you personally feel ready to do this work? And that, <laughs> that's usually when someone just doesn't have the energy anymore to hold it all together. You know, they have, like, I'm in so much pain. I don't know what to do about it. I don't want to be alone with it anymore. Somebody give me something to help me handle this. So it doesn't sound like it's a convincing tool, um, a space where it's kind of saying, come on, y'all, come work on your grief. It's fun over here or not fun, but we'll get through it. But more so a readiness type of thing that once a person has either they're ready because there are no other options, ready or not, here it comes kind of thing, mm -hmm. or a definitive decision of, I, I want to address this very head on, but in your description of it, it kind of sounds like that thing that when a person is ready to go to whatever the next understanding or phase of that, of the grief journey, this would be a good place to kind of. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 And it, it's that moment when you realize, God, remember hope. I miss feeling hope. I think I'd like to feel that again. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So I am intrigued, um, not that you necessarily, you could <laughs> have to name all 40, but I know that that number makes sense to me intellectually, but I'm like, if you told me mm. to name 40 types of, you know, or things that I can encounter grief around. I don't know that I would be able to like, bam, 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 bam. And I, I would believe that a number of listeners would be like 40. That seems like a lot because the, the, in our culture specifically, there are just a few things and you've pretty much named all. And when you said the different people you work with, um, and have journeyed with, I'm like, yeah, but that was like five. Right. So then you go like, wow, there's, much more can you just give us some things particularly the ones that people don't consider when you think about grief absolutely and I think actually the most helpful place to start is to define grief the way we define it in the grief recovery method Perfect. because it's a little different than I think what people would expect 
So according to the grief recovery method, the definition of grief is the conflicting feelings caused by the end or change in a familiar pattern of behavior. Can you repeat that? I would love to. Grief is the conflicting feelings caused by the end of or change in a familiar pattern of behavior. I absolutely adore that definition. Um, Isn't it great? It just, it names something amorphous that's really hard to name. It names this truth that with experiences of grief, it is a mixed bag. Yes, there's the dark spectrum of emotions like anger and sadness, but a lot of times our experiences of grief mingle with a lot of positive emotions as well. We can be happy and sad about something at the same time. Mm-hmm. What it also does is it, I think, very effectively helps people really understand why there is so much grief involved with healing. Because uh, yes, in eight in trauma recovery and resilience and healing and all the work that I do, it is about examining and exploring our beliefs, our worldviews and our behavioral patterns and making changes, informed, conscious, intentional changes to ways that we have engaged with the world repeatedly and within a patterned, uh, patterned space pattern in, in a pattern. So to say that conflictual experiences because a behavioral pattern is ceasing, that is grief. And there is so much grief in the healing journey. People hear healing and automatically start to sometimes think, oh, I get better. And there is this aspect of getting better, but anyone who's had any kind of, had to, anyone who's had to go through a physical healing journey, I think has a good grasp of the emotional, spiritual, mental healing journey, because yeah, you get the surgery, but most people recognize that the surgery is not the end. It is the beginning. It is the beginning point. (laughs) Sometimes it's the easy part of the journey. The surgery is the easiest part. (laughs) Yeah. You don't do anything. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Surgery happens to you. (laughs) So you, 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 you don't do anything. You, you are, you are in some ways present for it, but not even oftentimes consciously present for it, but it marks the beginning of all of these ways we have to shift how we engage with the world in the ways that we are used to doing it. And there is so much grief around that. So yeah, kudos. I I am a huge, huge, huge fan of that definition because it feels less minimizing than some of the other definitions that I've heard and probably have even used. Um, and it feels like it it opens up to the the vast array of ways that we experience grief. Absolutely. It's less minimizing and it's also less pathologizing. Yes. You know, grief is not, this is one of the misconceptions about grief. Grief is not a character flaw. It's not a moral failing. It's, it is this natural part of life and Mm -hmm. it's, it's that mixed bag of good and bad. And now with that more expanded definition as our base, you'll you'll see pretty quickly how we get to over 40 kinds of loss because Mm -hmm. beyond death if we're just talking about changes to familiar patterns of behavior you can experience grief with pregnancy because 
One second ago, I was one person in the world unattached, and now I am a parent, right? And now my body is, I don't know my body anymore, and I'm changing. You know, having new children, um, gaining siblings, going through fertility issues, experiencing miscarriage, you know, that's a whole bucket. Any changes to relationships like marriage, divorce, breaking up, shifting the definitions of your marriage, opening up, experiencing polyamory, um, changes in employment, things like graduating. Graduating is a, is a perfect example, uh, you know, high school, college, what have you, of those conflicting feelings. Because on the one hand, it's, it's this wonderful, exciting next chapter of your life opening up. But on the other hand, what? holy crap. <laughs> What am I supposed to do here? Life as I knew it is over. That, you know, maybe the end of my innocence, that kind of thing. Um, you know, retirement on the other end of it, at the, at the end of your life. Oh, who am I now that I no longer do this as a profession and I just am, have to exist in the world as myself? Um, any changes to mental or physical health? So that healing process that you were just describing, illness, injury, sexual issues, puberty, gender identity, aging, menopause, um, also changing, changing communities, moving to a totally different place, feeling like you have lost the support network that you were rooted in in a physical place, um, changing social circles. You know, those, those can all be experiences of grief. Any kind of financial or legal crisis, definitely comes with a whole suitcase of grief. And I mean, this is kind of a catch-all, but really any loss of faith, safety, identity, or trust, grief comes along with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with that definition and even these kind of pockets that you're describing it, I, I know for me, and I can imagine for many other people, it's like, oh, wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now with this expanded definition, I can also imagine people going like, okay, I kind of like the other definition because it left me excluded. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the person that's like, I've never been to a funeral. I've never lost someone to death due to, you know, um, who was proximate to me in that way. And I think there is a naive safety that people can get into in that space to kind of go like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. But now you're coming with this definition and these buckets. And I, I'm hard pressed to find anyone it, all the way to children um, with limited life experiences that hasn't experienced grief. And I can imagine for some folk that might feel a little overwhelming to come into this knowledge of it. What would you say to that? Oh, that's so true. I'll tell you, I'm not popular at parties. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, I'm in the corner, <laughs> just kind of looking around We're like, does anyone, anyone else want to talk about grief with me? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, we, I mean, you know this, we live in a really grief phobic society. People don't want to touch that topic with a 10-foot pole. They don't want to look at it. They just want to put it in a box, put the box under the bed, and light a match and burn the whole house down and never think about it. Mm -hmm. And tough. we live in a culture that by, um, by design in many aspects of our culture, it is designed 
to induce grief, right? So I think about like just schooling the way that it's done versus or, or public school, for example, versus Montessori. Montessori maintains these classrooms for about three years within the same room. Like there is a continuity there, right? There is a shift at some point. But then I think about like a traditional public school setting where every school year, there is this change. You got to go to a different room. You have to learn a new teacher. You have to learn their new style. So already we're talking about like this, this, by this definition of grief, it is induced every school year. Our political system says every two to four years, there is going to be some shift or at least the possibility of some shift on local state and federal levels that by definition create this change and all the conflictual experiences we have with it. So with that, to a person who might be experiencing overwhelm as you're like, oh my God, well, I was in that bucket, that bucket, that bucket. Yes. And what would it be like to just take a deep breath, like literally as you're listening to me talk, just breathe in through your nose, slow exhale, I think grief has in some ways turned into the, um, the material of urban legend. It's Hmm. like the thing that, you know, might be out there. Is it really out there? I don't know. Maybe it's out there, but I'm not going to stand in the mirror and say that three times, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know what I mean? I just trust it. Like, okay, is you're over there. Don't mess with me. And I do think that there can be something that fills a spectrum of things for a lot of people all the way from a discomfort to a outright fear that it's this close to home, that it is actually part of your experience, not just someone else's. And what it would be like to maybe just open the door to possibility that that's not a bad thing, that it comes without value judgment, good, bad, right, wrong. And it just is what it is. There is a different posture that we engage things that just are versus things that are, but we don't want them to be, or are but are imposing upon us in some way or are but we you know we want to eradicate so that's an offering as I just could imagine you know it didn't feel overwhelming to me because I have befriended grief and I'm in a relationship with grief but I also know that there are many people who are not so I just wanted to offer that pause midway through to say, if you are experiencing something, if your body is sending you messages, if all of a sudden you come back and you're like, wait a minute, I got to rewind because I just missed. I don't even know how much I missed because I dissociated or you start to get a headache or all of a sudden, like, I want to normalize that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. We are bringing to the forefront an experience that most of us have consciously or subconsciously disconnected from so just take a breath and know that like you're good you're good so from this perspective I would love to talk about some of the myths yes 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 my message to all of those folks out there who are feeling overwhelmed by the idea of having to confront their grief directly is it is not your fault that you feel overwhelmed by this 
you were we are not born and growing up in a culture where we're given the right tools to process loss directly. And in fact, we're given a bunch of bad information about how to cope with loss. And so I think that's where we get into some of the uh, misconceptions and myths related to grief. When I say misconceptions, I'm talking about misconceptions about, you know, there's no hope of ever recovering from grief. If you've experienced grief, that's it, game over. That defines who you are you know, till the end. Um, And that is absolutely not true. There are ways to process and heal for sure. Um, You don't, you don't just have to live in that pain forever and keep finding new and better coping mechanisms to keep yourself distracted from it. Um, And also it doesn't mean processing your grief doesn't mean getting over something. We're really explicit about this is not about quote unquote, getting over something. It's not even about, quote unquote, moving on. It's certainly not about forgetting a person that you've lost. It's about being able to engage with the positive and joyful memories of that person without feeling afraid that if you open that door to spend time with the positive memories, you're going to, these, you know, boogeyman hands are going to reach out, snatch you, drag you in. And now you're going to have to experience all of the, you know, painful regret, remorse, you know, embarrassing or awkward memories that come creeping in for that person you lost. And by the way, everyone else and everything else you've lost, because as you know, we grieving is not a linear process, mm-hmm. right? It's when we grieve, we don't grieve one thing at a time. It's not a club with a one in one out policy. It just everything kind of hitting you at once. Mm-hmm. So those yeah. are some of the, the misconceptions. And then when we get into the myths, I'm talking about that bad information, that harmful information that we actually are taught because we're, we're taught how to acquire things not how to lose them. So, you know, there's there's a whole variety of myths that we talk about in the deprogramming stage of the grief recovery method. And the first one is that there are five stages to a grief journey. I think a lot of people are familiar with this. It's Dr. Kubler-Ross. And, you know, originally she did that research on people, specifically people who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and were coming to terms with the end of their life. That's a very specific context, but we have now co-opted those five stages, you know, like anger, denial, bargaining, acceptance, et cetera. And we try to apply that to any kind of grief. And I know why that urge is there because we want to intellectualize it. We want to be able to view it as a process that has an end that can be moved through. We want to be able to analyze where we're at or where someone else is at. But that's just not how grief works. Right? And can I interject something there? Yes. Like it, it reminds me, like, as, as humans, we want boxes. Mm-hmm. We want categories. We want processes, um, particularly humans in our culture. Let me say that. We have been culturalized and socialized around because so much I I have as soon as you were like talking about the myths I was like let's play a game how many of them are rooted in exploitative capitalism and white supremacy all of them and I don't even know all of them right so but that's the lens so there is a capitalistic exploit there uh, you know supremacy 
culture creates a hierarchy of everything including humanity humanity being the ultimate hierarchy that there is an ideal humanity which is whiteness and the ideals that are subscribed to it and there is an the opposite of that which was this idea of blackness and everything that's been associated with that and and so people have to constantly navigate their way through where am i in this spectrum of humanity and non-human or subhuman and everything falls in line and so you think about grief as something that can prolong productivity <laughs> yep. you think about grief as something that can um, impair the physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional um, productivity of a person. I look at it as it makes sense to me that this co-opting of this very narrowed perspective of a group of people who travel through this journey in a in a pretty aligned way now is applied for people to go. Can you hurry up and what stage are you on? Right. Can we get to acceptance already? Yeah. Can you hurry up with that? Because I kind of need you back at work. Um, Can you do that? Because I I really need you to keep taking care of your kids. Like, so there, there seems to always be a thing we need to do, a progression we need to make and a productivity we need to have that would have us go through. And it's easier to go through or push someone or encourage someone through something that has a finite amount of stages that are defined by this thing so that myth makes sense to me in the culture Mm -hmm. that we live in and its accuracy like many other things doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) yeah who cares about like the accuracy or integrity to what this is actually about as long as it gives us something that we can make sense of and I say that in as neutral a way as possible I'm not even trying to presume malicious intent I'm just saying that through generations and generations this is the culturation that we have been reared in that says I gotta fit things into a nice box so much so that we try to put humanity in a box well what race are you whole other you'll have to go back to season one when I talked to um uh Joan about mourning the uh mourning the creation of racial categories like mm-hmm. all of these things right um that they want to fit neatly in a box completely is not how humanity works but please <laughs> continue oh well agree 100 percent and Bringing in the, that capitalist lens for sure is a great lead into another myth, which is just replace the loss. Oh, you lost something? Oh, the way to feel better is not to sit in the discomfort. It's not to acknowledge and have relationship with the full spectrum of your emotions related to that experience, positive and negative. It's, oh, just replace it. Mm. Lose a job, go get another one. Go through a bad breakup, there are plenty of fish in the sea. If you imagine... A parent, you know, their child loses a toy, the child starts crying. There's this instinct to say, don't feel bad, don't feel bad. We can just get you another one. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's that's a good one. And I think in some ways that calling that a myth, I think is going to be challenging to a lot of ideations that people have had because it's so ingrained in our socialization from very young beautiful example of when a child feels upset about the loss or change of something 
the adult perspective is so minimizing often to just be like, it's not that big a deal. It's one toy. It's one thing there. Or you have another one. (laughs) Why are you upset about this? (laughs) You have another one. I know that me, myself, I'm not excluding myself from a person who's done that as a parent, you know, where it's like, it can't be that big deal. My God, you have hundreds of toys, but, or here's one we assign value to a thing based on its cost Mm. instead of the relationship someone has had with it. So if my kid gets um, a toy out of the little quarter machine that you stick the quarter in and it comes down in a little ball and they lose that toy and they're upset, there is a natural immediate instinct for me to be like, come on, that thing didn't have it. We only paid a quarter for it. Like it, it doesn't have that much value versus something that I might have spent $50 on. I am expecting my child to value those things based on how much I paid for them or how much I sacrificed for them, which is why parents get upset that kids play with the box. You're not upset (laughs) that the kid is playing with the box. You're upset that you paid a lot of money for what's in the box and your child has a different value system based on that thing than you do. So that that's, that's a great one. Thank you. I'm not immune to it either. I I teach this program. I, this is what I do for a job. And two weeks ago, I was with my four-year-old niece. She, her older brother, just straight up as, as older brothers are wont to do, just came and clobbered her, took a toy, ran off with it. And her adorable little, her giant eyes and her little precious moments face welled up with tears and my, it's just that instinct is so programmed in there to go, don't feel bad, don't feel bad, don't cry, it's going to be okay. And I had to stop myself halfway through it and just say, like, wait, okay, let's not be a hypocrite here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, let's use the tools. And so I just kind of sat with her and said, how do you feel right now? How does it feel that he took that toy? Tell me, oh, we're, we're mad? Yeah, let's get mad. Let's let's stomp our feet for a while until we feel better. You know, it's just letting her be in that mm-hmm. negative emotion because it's, it's those little moments when you're a kid that you learn things like that and you grow up to be through, through no, again, no judgment here, no fault. If that's what we're taught, it's the only way we know how to be. But those people grow up to be the kind of people that say after someone loses a spouse, oh, it's okay, just get remarried. Or they say to someone who just lost a child to miscarriage, you can always try again. Mm, mm-hmm. And they, and you mean well, and you're trying to help, but what you're really doing is saying probably something, the, probably the most painful thing you could tell that person in that moment, you know? Yeah, and <clears throat> and it also just really hits on the point that oftentimes, how a person responds to another person who's actively grieving, who they can recognize as actively grieving has to do with, yes, the messages that they absorbed growing up, but also the person who's responding, their comfort with grief. Uh-huh. Because a person who is not comfortable with expressions of grief or grief itself will subconsciously even try to rush someone through it, even in the moment they're interacting. So that, mo- oh, don't cry, don't cry. The- so you're uncomfortable with tears and so your default is to make them feel better so they'll stop crying because it is very uncomfortable for you 
to deal with tears. Now, I'm not saying embedded in that cycle isn't a genuine care for that person. Absolutely. But that genuine care is a selfish care because it's not taking into account what that person might actually need is to cry, is to be angry, is to shut down or is to go party or whatever the thing is. And so I think it's helpful for people to start to understand their own relationship with grief as it has been given to them, as it has been absorbed, as they are experiencing it right now, because it helps you understand how and why you're engaging with other people the way that you are. Not good, not bad, not right, not wrong. It just is. And it can be very, um, it can be very helpful for us to realize how often we are selfishly motivated when we are talking to and engaging with other people. I don't say that to shame or as an indictment. It's just people who understand that have a better gauge of like, oh, this ain't even about them. This, oh, that was about me. And how many times I engage and I know this and I'm like, oh yeah, that ain't had nothing to do with them. That was all about me. And it, it offers me the opportunity to pause and recognize that there is that selfish tendency. So then I go, oh, mm-hmm. so let me do what I need to do for me So that when I'm engaging with them, I'm not doing all of that projection and things like that. Absolutely. Beautiful lead into another myth. And I think this one is, this one is really dangerous. So, you know, some of these are those capitalist and white supremacist lens, which, I mean, I guess those are plenty dangerous too. But um, the idea that the appropriate way to grieve is to grieve alone, that the only way to grieve with dignity is to grieve privately. Mm. I mean, when you think about if, especially in instances where someone died, you get this message of, oh, give them space, give them space and privacy to grieve. And that is such a good example of, I don't think that's about them. Most of the grieving people I talk to are feel so lonely and isolated, but it's that attitude of the community around them where what's underneath that is, oh, I don't want to be anywhere near that. (laughs) That makes Mm -hmm. me so uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about your grief or mine. So, you know, you just take all the time and space you need to work through that and best of luck. Mm -hmm. Because my proximity to your grief activates my grief and I don't know how to deal with that. And sometimes I think that people who have it and, and what What I don't think we're talking about is moments of aloneness. I think everyone needs that, but we mean going through the whole process alone. Um, And people who say, I just want to be alone often just want to be alone because of what people who are coming to them are bringing Mm, to it, right? It reminds me of the experiences, some experiences I've had with, um, with grief. Um, so here's another, I'll bring this up again. So I'm on Netflix (laughs) and there is, um, it's a series called the future of, and I was on the episode life after death, which really gave me an opportunity to really think about so many things. And it always brings back when my father died, I was, um, I will call myself a little girl. I mean, I was 24, but now that really feels like I was a little girl and Mm. from, um, from a trauma perspective, I was a little girl. And here I am. My father has died. And there's my mother, her husband of 25 years has died. And neither one of us shed a tear. Because 
excuse me, I like the way you said it. We were attempting to grieve with dignity (laughs) and we wanted to be strong for Mm -hmm. the other person. And so there's that there is this in it. I grieve that that was our posture. We didn't know better. I, I grieve now that we even had some kind of conceptualization that the thing to do was act like we had not lost one of the most important people, persons in our lives. That baffles me now. But it also, I look at, at least in my, I'll, when I'll define my culture, I will say the the Black church culture. That, that feels like that sums it up pretty good for this, where there's this process of, okay, death. Then there's like a a huge rallying cry around the bereaved, which involves food. It always involves food. People are bringing food um, and presents. People are there. Our home felt like this revolving door of people, you know, whether they were strategically saying, I got the morning, I got the afternoon, I got the evening, or rather that's just how it works out. People were going, okay, I'll hop over before I go to work. Okay, I'll go over after we want to be there. And so that, and that is, that is the pattern. It's so interesting that I think somewhere at the core of this, and I'm not even, this is not that it's a bad thing. I think at the core of these traditions were the bereaved should not have to concern themselves with what am I going to eat and I have to cook. There is a community that wraps itself around the bereaved to say these basic needs are taken care of. I mean, I know in so many things, we don't have to worry about driving ourselves anywhere. There are people who are saying, oh, we need to make the arrangements. I will drive you to the funeral home. I will drive you back. Oh, you need to get clothes to wear. I will drive. So there is just like this amazing community concierge service. And then there's the funeral. How many ever days later? And then everyone disappears. Mm. And there are still the periodic calls. Don't get me wrong. There's not a, and I don't want to position it as if it's a full abandonment. No. But there is like all this noise in people and then it just goes silent. I think that's one of the more difficult transitions, even than transitioning to the fact that you've lost the person. <clears throat> it's like, I lost this person And then all these people came in to fill in these gaps and then there is silence and I've lost the person and the community. So I think we need to be conscious about when we go, oh no, so-and-so, so-and-so died. Let me go grab this cake. Let's pause and realize they got to eat after the funeral. Good idea. How do we extend that to recognize that if we're going to say you got morning, you got afternoon and you got night, maybe we need to say you have pre-funeral I got the month after. What about the month after that? Because there is a prolonged experience. And what I also recognize with my mom and I not grieving is my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. She didn't, the opposite of community. She didn't give us any space. She was lurking around every corner. (laughs) (laughs) She was always there. And in this position where I think what it was is if we were going to do the crying thing, it was the myth we had, we had to do it in private. She didn't give us no privacy. So there is, I think, a balance of, of that that comes in 
that requires us to be less, this is what we're supposed to do. And more of let's think about what grief is and, and how it's showing up and how can I position myself to be in community with a person in a way that they need it. Yes. And I want to be clear. There's, there's not a right way and a wrong way to go through a, a, a loss experience. Mm-hmm. You, you are what you are. You feel what you feel. And by all means, if someone asks for space, believe them and give it to them, honor mm-hmm. that request. Um, but don't assume that that's what they need in that moment. And I love your suggestion of whatever that community mutual aid organizing mechanism is that can accomplish. I got morning, you got afternoon. I love that. You know, I got pre, you got during, I got after, you got six months after, mm-hmm. you got the year after, etc. And as I walk with folks who are having, who are just experiencing the grief, one of the things that, and this might be another myth, maybe I'm really good at segueing, but <laughs> um, one of the <laughs> things that frequently comes up is we'll go through this process together. And, and this isn't just people I work with. This could be family, you know, people I'm in personal relationship with. And then they get to a point where they feel better, whatever that means, whatever that mm-hmm. means. And then they are like, they, they feel they've got a hold on how their life is reorganized. Maybe it's a little scary, but they're, they're out there, they're doing the thing. And then it comes back and there is this perception of personal deficiency that they've done it wrong. Well, maybe I didn't do it right. May I thought I grieved this. Maybe I didn't grieve it. What's wrong with me. I should, the number of shoulds in my response to every should is who told you that? Yeah, no, tell me who, who told you that? And, and they don't know because it's a, it's a mythical should, mm-hmm. you know, I should be over this by now. I should be able to go back to work. I should be able to walk into this space and not break down every time I go in there. And so is there a myth for that? <laughs> well, I, I think that's unique to every person and every piece of culture that they're embedded in because, uh, you know, we go through the common myths as part of the program. And then I turn the dialogue over to the client and say, tell me about what you've learned. What are your myths and who taught when and where and how was that taught to you? And I remember working with a woman who is from the South and she immediately was just like, don't be a mess. That's my myth. That's my number one myth that got drilled into me is, okay, fine. You experience loss. You're going through grief. Keep it all together. You are not allowed to be a mess in public. You've got to be perfectly quaffed and composed wherever you go. And that was her myth. I, you know, another myth that comes up a lot for folks who were brought up Christian is, the, almost this sort of toxic positivity piece related to loss of, well, they're in a better place now. And underneath that, if, you know, if I ask, okay, knowing that, does that actually heal you? Does it actually make you feel better? And the answer is usually no. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I, I can understand that intellectually, but my heart is still broken. Mm-hmm. It, I don't, good for them that they're in a better place. I'm still here on this earth feeling these feelings. <laughs> yeah. I am I I love that response. We all have myths. So this feels like a good time to reintroduce 
or introduce to some and remind others the three questions that I highly encourage people to consider when they come upon a belief. I believe this thing to be true. Don't say it's a good belief or a bad belief. It is just a belief. Then the first question is, who taught me that? Or where did I learn it? I think those that's just a good question. Where did this come from? The second question is, um, is it true? Slash, is it still true? And then the third question is, who's being harmed and who's benefiting from my belief in this? <sighs> and that just allows us to look at some of these beliefs in a way that allows us to experience some space and some freedom to recognize that all the beliefs we were given are not ones that we have to hold on to. Um, and then if we can release some of the multitude of ones we're holding on to, it leaves way for us to grab some others that have been there, but haven't been accessible because that slot has been filled with something that benefited someone else a long time ago or still. Or and, folks are still profiting off of it as yes. we speak. And yeah. so that that is huge. Uh, we all kind of carry these beliefs and these behavioral patterns based on what we absorbed, what we were told were the right things, avoiding um, avoiding the pain of isolation or um, disconnection and all of those things. And it it's it's grief is one of those things that I call it a magnet. You know, you said we don't grieve in isolation. I believe grief is a magnet and what it draws to it is all of these other unresolved things. And I don't mean that just because something comes up, a past grief comes up with something you're grieving in the present doesn't mean you haven't actively grieved it in the past. No, that's not what I'm saying, but it grief, <laughs> I think some people think of grief as let me, it's a thing that I'm going to go through so that it can evaporate. So then it's gone. I grieved it. It's gone. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's just actually not how, <laughs> how it works. Yeah. Um, and even when you think of evaporation, evaporation doesn't mean that the water is gone. It's just changed form. It's going to come back down as rain, right? It, 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 it's there. It's a cycle. And so when we look at not stages, but cycles that we mm -hmm. can go through within the grieving process, I think it just helps us understand it a little more and it makes it more human yes so I'll save that one I'll save that one I do want to know Anna if there's <laughs> is there anything that I didn't ask or we didn't get a chance to talk about um but are any last parting words you want to leave with the audience um of listeners as we start to wrap up oh well um I my favorite fun fact to share is about crying and about tears. I tell this to people, you have some clients in front of me, they never shed a single tear. And that is, that's fine. If that's what your body's doing, a-okay, not a right or wrong way to do it. Some people come and cry buckets and they are apologizing the whole time. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you have to see me like this. I'm sorry. I'm crying. And I'm always just like, Go, don't, you don't need to apologize to me for that go for it, let it all out, because they did a study on the composition of tears when you're crying tears because of emotional pain versus physical pain. If you cry tears due to physical pain, that's just water and some salt. But if you're crying tears because you're in emotional pain, they found that those tears are actually full of stress hormones. 
And so crying is literally your body's way of filtering harmful stress hormones out of your bloodstream. So let that stuff out. It is, it is beautiful to cry. I also recently saw a thing. Now, this is not fact checked, y'all. This was just straight social media. So don't hold me to it. But in addition to, I do know, remember learning about the different kinds of tears, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting fact a lot of our tears are actually in our nose, which is why our nose runs. So that was an interesting thing for mm-hmm. me. Doesn't just come out of our eyes, but <clears throat> tears that are more emotionally related, I read not only do they fall slower but they have some kind of protein embedded in them that leaves the the streak on our face to signal because we're social animals to signal that we are in distress and could need community <sighs> which i thought was like first of all how amazing is the body the body is like super dope y'all i know i i won't even give myself credit for one tenth maybe one one hundredth of all of its awesomeness but what i do now is this mechanism that we walk around in oftentimes shaming but that's another podcast Mm. is amazing at what it does and so i love that fun fact anna if someone is listening and they are like i need to know more they want to reach out to you or they're interested in this process working with you or how to get surfed whatever they want to know how can people find you Yes. So the best place to find me is actually Instagram. You can go to at heal today underscore GRM. And once you get to my Instagram page, there are a bunch of other links there to find my website that talks about my grief recovery work. It's just, it's a clunky URL to say. So that's why I'm like, just go to, find me on Instagram, Anna, Anna Jollymore at heal today underscore GRM. Um, but you can reach out to me through Instagram or through my, the contact me button on my website. Um, I do a ton more grief and health education in my Instagram content. If you just want to learn about it, if you want to work with me, by all means, get in touch with me. And if you want to learn more about the grief recovery method, you can just do what I did and Google it. There's, you know, it's, there's the grief recovery Institute. They have a great website with tons of information. You can even download the grief recovery handbook for free from their website. So there's plenty of ways to find out more about the method itself. Thank you. Um, We will obviously have that in the show notes. I do want to say how much I appreciate um, people, places, and organizations that share information openly, and they're not trying to commodify or colonize knowledge. So I appreciate that from the Grief Recovery Network. The final thing I want to say is, Anna, can you tell the people how you got on my podcast? Sure, I would be happy to. So as I was making my career transition, I I was telling LaShonda, I went on a rampage of looking for podcasts and, and community and networking just in the field of mental health, especially grief and trauma, um, and also finding fellow death workers. And so that is how I came upon your podcast. I think I found you through Instagram too and started listening to it. And I just fell in love with it. I love your point of view. I You have the best guests on the show. I feel way <laughs> imposter syndrome right now being a guest on this program. So um, I, I'm so appreciative for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. And then you reached out. Oh, yes. And that's what I did. I, <laughs> I just sent you an email and said, hey, I noticed you like to talk about grief. I like to talk about grief too. I do this really specific grief work. Can we talk about it together? And I thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for all of your encouragement and support. But I, I'm so glad she shared that 
because I know I have tons and tons of supportive listeners who would make amazing guests just like Anna. Um, I want to honor this imposter syndrome and I want to tell you it was amazing. This is amazing. I know so many people are going to get so many things from this. And I hope this is encouragement. People, we also live in a culture where it's because of the hierarchy, we put people on pedestals. And I recognize and I I love, thank you for all the people who support me. And there are people who are like, I could probably go on there and talk about this. Or I, people would need to hear about this, but I couldn't do that. Yes, you can. <laughs> Yes, you can. So if you are listening um, and you have a perspective that you haven't heard, or maybe you've heard it, but you want to say it again, just reach out. I have, my media team will get in contact with you and it'll be great or reach out to me directly and I'll point you in the direction of them. But Anna is not the only person that has come to my podcast by through this method, but I'm so glad she had the opportunity to share. It didn't come from me. She just said, it started with a Google search and then I ended up on Instagram and then I found you and then I listened and then I'm hey, can we talk? We can, right? And even if that doesn't, that doesn't have to result in you being on the podcast. Maybe it's just you wanting to have a conversation with me about whatever. Listen, don't ever hesitate to reach out. I am so reachable. I I am not someone who I want to engage with you. I just see numbers. And I love it when I have the opportunity to put faces in humanity to the numbers that are listening to the podcast. So hopefully that if you felt your heart rate increase when I was talking about this, I'm probably talking to you. Um, <laughs> but other than that, Anna, thank you so much for your time, um, your wisdom, and for your sharing not only your personal journey, but how you journey with others. It was my pleasure. Let's let's talk about grief some more. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who does all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, and my producer, Jay Suck from Instant Classic Media. To my listeners, y'all know I love y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you uh, are thinking, well, how can I get in touch with you? If you go to my website all the way down on the welcome page, there's a place where you can fill out a form if you have uh, suggestions for content or guest for the podcast. Podcast, even if that's yourself you can hit me up on any of the major social media platforms don't forget the therapy thursday videos are housed on youtube i literally had someone that i worked with for a few years through some contracts text me today saying that he was going through youtube my youtube page uh looking for some videos for something and he is like uh your subscriptions and views are ridiculously low for how awesome the content is and i'm like i know right I agree. But, you know, I, it, the awesomeness is there for folks when they get there. So if I know if you listen to the podcast platform, that might be where you get it. But if you actually want to see my beautiful face as I talk about those things, there's a whole YouTube channel with hundreds of videos there. And if you haven't already, go ahead and hit that uh, five star rating, write a review, share the podcast with your loved ones and friends. Until we connect again, you all be well. <laughs>